Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What Is A Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to help you find and define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the 22nd episode of the What Is A Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Craig Slee. Craig is a disabled writer, consultant and theorist, dealing with mythology, magic and culture and exploring life through the lens of landscape, disability, and fugitive embodiments. He has contributed essays and poetry focusing on the numinous and disability to various anthologies. And he has also co-facilitated numerous series at the Dresden Academy for Fine Arts, including one on ableism and arts in 2022. In this episode, Craig takes us on a journey from burning out from trying to be, in air quotes, normal, to exploring other ways of being and existing, to developing a greater awareness regarding the subtleties of life, pain and suffering, and ultimately to discovering vitality and aliveness and living his own good life. There's plenty to take from this episode in terms of guiding you to pay attention, developing a more subtle awareness, and the significance in our inquiries of sensing the world as it is without labeling it, and what all this may lead to in terms of finding new ways of being. And if you enjoy this conversation and this podcast, please like, share and subscribe and leave reviews as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 22nd episode of the What Is A Good Life podcast. Craig, thank you very, very much for joining me on the What Is A Good Life today. This is a conversation I was very much looking forward to after our our previous conversation together. Well, it's my pleasure. It's uh, great to have a conversation with you uh, previously and today. So there we go. Wonderful. So Craig, as I tend to start these off with uh, the question of what question are you trying to answer as you move through life? I think the biggest question I'm uh, trying to answer is what's going on that we don't notice? Uh, What's going on in our lives, in our existences, in our relationships with other beings, human and otherwise, that we're just not noticing at all. Um, And I think that very much ties in with my own um, lived experience as somebody with a lifelong disability. Um, And it raises a lot of questions for me as a person who is wondering um, about assumptions that are made, that we all make, that everybody makes about what life is. That's um, that's a beautiful in, in investigation in terms of what aren't we noticing and and just how, how kind of prevalent that is in, in relationships as well. How does like your p- specific lens and through um, your experience with lifelong disability, how is that? How's, can you kind of share with us? Sure, the, sure, the, sure. The so um, experiences from that perspective, a little bit of background. Um, I was born with cerebral palsy um, and I use a wheelchair. And in 2017, I also became a partial amputee um, due to some medical problems. And one of the things that I experienced throughout my life in good and bad ways is people trying to make me through surgery and through experience have as quote normal an experience Mm. as possible, you know, make things accessible, make things inclusive, 
all the wonderful words and good words that we use for uh, disability, uh, you know, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion, you know, all these things. Um, and <clears throat> I got to, well, must have been my late 20s, and I burnt out completely <laughs> trying to have that, you know, normal, everyday experience because it costs so much more energy for those of us who are uh, configured differently, who have a different experience, to, to show up and try and uh, ignore the things your body and your mind are telling you, which for other people, uh, they would have less problems perhaps. Say, say you know, it costs me a lot of energy to get out of bed in the morning, uh, for other people, it might be a simple, pro simple thing to, that they do without thinking. For me, that that takes a whole rigmarole. In my case, uh, it actually takes at least one or two other people to help me out of bed in the morning. Right. So th this whole idea of a a normal experience and trying to behave as if there is a normal experience that one should strive to. I kind of burn out on that and it, it, it really caused me um, <laughs> significant mental health problems at the time um, because I was like, well, I'm burning myself out striving for this supposed thing that I should go for uh, that indeed my parents and uh, my family sacrificed a lot for in order to get, have let me have these so-called advantages, you know, throughout my, my youth, I had surgery so that I would, wouldn't be as disabled. You know, I have physically been reconfigured um, in order that I would be more independent or more so on and so forth. And so all these... <sighs> points at which I, I hit the mental health low and I was sort of sat there going, well, what is there? If I can't be that, what can I be? Um, and that was when I started looking at my own experience, comparing it to the apparent norm and going, okay, mine's different. But what is the norm assuming that isn't actually true for a lot of people, right? Right. You know, what are they missing about what they consider ordinary? You know, is the ordinary actually fundamentally strange and weird? And we don't realize that. And that's my whole jumping off point. Well, that's a... Uh that's a beautiful point to jump off from, isn't it? The where I, I guess, like, just in, in terms then of your observations, what are you almost? What are you seeing that the ideas of the norm or the way people are looking at life? What do you see them missing? I think one of the big things, and is this this idea um, that we have around movement, activity, and autonomy, 
right? So um, a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, the the let let's let's pick a purely hypothetical example here. If for some reason, say you were paralyzed or you couldn't get out of bed, right? The generalized assumption would be, you know, okay, so um, if you're lying in bed, you're doing nothing, right? Right. But actually, if you think about all the things that your body is doing when you are, quote, lying in bed doing nothing, it's quite a lot. Your cells are dividing, your heart is beating, your lungs are inflating, all this is going on. And a lot of the time people, particularly with, say, chronic fatigue or other disabilities, one of the, the horrible things that sort of happens is, why am I so tired? I'm not doing anything. And in many of these cases, your body is doing a lot of things. It's burning through a lot of resources. And that is why you are fatigued. That is why you're exhausted. You know, but it doesn't look like you're doing anything from the outside when actually your body is probably working harder than somebody who is probably going on a jog. Right. You see what I mean? So there's yeah. this whole um, assumption that activity has to be big and noticeable. And you can take that into the idea of activism. You know, it has to be a big, giant political movement. You know, it has to be a, a big, noticeable gesture, something that is recognizable. And one of the things that I have noticed in my life is some of the biggest changes they happen from the smallest um, movements inside my own body and, and taking that outside, the, the, the way a plant moves towards the sun, as an example. That is a what we would consider a tiny movement. But that plant suddenly has so much more access to more sunlight because of that tiny movement and we don't recognize it. So there's this whole idea to, that we exist in varying uh, temporalities and experiences, various ways of living that we just don't notice, you know? Um, yeah. And, and in that case, one of the, the biggest ideas uh, that I took from my friend Bio, who you had on the podcast, is something that he said to me in conversation, which is uh, disability is the failure of power to contain itself, right? Hmm. And I take that to mean that there will always be overspill. There will always be things going on that we don't notice, right? That a human being who has a firm grip, shall we say, on their mug, which I've got here, but I won't put on the camera, isn't aware always of all the muscle movements in their wrists 
and their fingers. Right? To them, it's a simple movement of the mug to their mouth. Right? That's a outline, that's a standard movement. Nobody thinks about what's actually going on, the things that are spilling out into that situation. So there's always leakage, you know, and disability for me is focusing on that leakage, that kind of um, thing that exists in spite of those norms. So the movements, the activities that happen, even though they don't fit the designation of activity or activism or things like that. So it, it almost sounds, Craig, then like this, like there's a, are you cultivating like a very deep um, awareness of what other people may even just think the nuances or subtleties, but this is, this is something that you like, that it can be truly felt more or. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say, you know, that it, you can, to me, there's a difference between sensing and sense making, right? So we spend a lot of our time experiencing stimuli and then trying to interpret that mm. stimuli, right? Because uh, I know I, I stick my finger in my, my tea. Ow, that's hot. I've recognized that's hot. That's all I need to know, right? Because obviously that hurt. <laughs> that's, we don't study our pain, right? Because we want to try and avoid it. But if you have a disability or something which ha gives you chronic pain, as I do, there's no escape from your pain. You can take a whole bunch of painkillers, but ultimately it'll be back. So you have a choice. You can spend your entire existence trying to avoid it. And this isn't some, you know, macho thing. This is, okay, what does my pain do to my body? Uh, in my case, when my chronic pain is bad, it literally alters the way I sit. It it alters the way I think. It alters the way um, I move, all this stuff. And studying these sort of things, which we normally either don't notice or avoid, um, can change your consciousness a little bit. It can make you more aware of things that you are perhaps unaware of or resources that you didn't even know you had. Um, and that to me is, is one of the key points is that there are resources and, and ways of being, uh, which people don't even know exists. And the people who do know they exist are the people who found them because they have no choice. They've had those right. experiences, which say actually, um, I had no alternative but to learn to exist in pain or so on and so forth and learn how to marshal my resources in a very particular way. And when you do that, when you start thinking about sensing the world, not immediately trying to interpret it, right? Just noticing what's going on and rather than going, oh, 
that tree is waving in the breeze, you know, and saying, ah, oh, I've seen a tree that is waving in the breeze. Yeah. You actually look at the tree and you go, okay, okay, something's going on there. And I'm not going to necessarily say, ah, oh, the tree is waving in the breeze. I'm just going to study that tree and the way it moves and the conditions. And this means that it leaks out of the idea of the human, right? It leaks out of the idea of um, life and agency belonging solely to the human and to the human individual, right? So it be you become aware of more interdependencies in your environment and with you. You become aware of, or in my experience, again, I can only speak from my experience. Yeah, absolutely. One can begin to become aware of how one occupies space and how space alters the way we think. You know. When you, uh, could you give me a sense of how you began to, explore this experience you know like so even from like was this something that you were i know you said like look the it's almost a you're brought to this situation because the you're mm. confronted with the pain you know chronic pain and mm. um, can you give me a sense so like was there a i'm not looking for one aha yeah, moment yeah. like but you know because you even mentioned already small little things happen and things build mm -hmm. but can you give me even a sense of how this shift started to occur for you in terms of how you'd uh, study your pain, shall okay. we say? So the, the, essentially the, the real shift began when, um, prior to my amputation in, uh, 2017, I'd always had these feelings and these ideas and prior to the amputation, uh, I don't want to, you know, gross your listeners out too much, but essentially the reason the amputation happened was because part of a limb started dying through various right. forms. And, um, essentially as that part of that limb dies, it hurts. It hurts a hell of a lot. You know, you end up on morphine daily and that sort of thing. So there's actually no escape from the pain and there are, you know, times when you don't want to be here because you just don't want to hurt anymore. And one of the moments I realized in the midst of that was that the pain level wasn't actually constant, right? It shifted. It, it was still to use a, a, a traditional pain scale. It was, still a 10 at all the times. But actually, if I, if I focused on it, I realized it wasn't the 10 wasn't the same all the time, you know? Hmm. So I began to see ebbs and flows in my pain moments where it seemed not as intense as painful, but not as intense or moments when, perhaps it increased. And it, so this ebb and flow of something that by any given metric would say, oh, so you're saying it was less than a 10. No, 
No, it was just a different quality. And it becomes quality over quantity, if you like. You know, we quantize the world rather than sensing its qualities. And that was the point for me where I was like, oh, okay. These things which we think are fixed experiences, they ebb and they flow and they shift and they change like a weather system. You know, we say, oh, it's raining today, but actually the level of rain isn't always constant. But we assume, oh, it's raining. There's a uniform level. And there isn't in a more ecological sense. There's always these little shifts. And building on that um, sense of, of little shifts meant that when I was before sometimes screaming in agony, it was a case of it will change. It may not get better, but it will change. And this is what... This too shall pass. Yeah. But not pass in terms of go away. It will shift. And one of the key things for me with dealing with disability is there is this assumption that if you are ill or sick or disabled, there's a trajectory where you become sick and then you get better. Right? And as anybody with chronic illness or a lifelong disability or even a disability in later life will tell you, sometimes that doesn't happen. And and the general narrative doesn't know what to do with that. Some people would say, oh, I'd rather be dead than be disabled. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I empathize with, with that feeling because they can't conceive of another way of existing, right? Um, and, and so what I'm, what I'm sort of wondering about outside of, of my personal experience is what other ways of existing are there? What other agencies are there um, which are involved in our lives, which we're not noticing? I love the sentiments of what are the ways of existing are there, but there's there's one thing you I don't know the, there's one thing you kind of said there in terms of you know how how uncomfortable it is for people or that they don't know what to do with this sense of look you have this arc you know mm. almost of sickness then then recovery and they don't know what to do with it if someone has a a long a long standing or a long life dis- disability. Um, how do you how do you see or how do you kind of observe society's struggle with that see this this is one of those um those points at which um i'm gonna invoke an academic here um because the academic um fiona kumari campbell um has this uh set of theory that she calls studies in ableism, right? right? And one of the key points of these this theory is that um, an ableist society, which is purely a, a society which favors those it regards as abled, right, um, requires 
there to be something to not be, right? So it creates right. this idea of disability and puts it at the bottom, right? It puts it at the bottom of a ranking system, if you like. And at the top of the ranking system are the totally autonomous, you know, healthy, you know, can do whatever they want, unencumbered by restriction people. And at the bottom of this ranking system, there are the people who are totally dependent on other, you know, other beings that have no autonomy, that are not in actual fact worthy individuals, right? And everybody in an ableist society, so the theory goes, is trying not to be at the bottom, right? We're trying to be as, as autonomous as possible. As, as And so when you deal with that ranking system, there's a lot of trying to flee from that position um, and trying to get better, you know, trying right. to uh, not have to rely on as many people. Um, and there's a weird moral component to that you know, and when people hit that sort of point at which they're like, I'm not going to get any better, they don't know how to engage with what the conditions that they're under, right? And I think that the sticking with the conditions that we're under and studying them is the point that we don't, as a society, um, have a good way of doing. We're always looking for the next thing. Yeah. Right? And I think I've got a bit lost here. So if you, if I'm not answering the question, then by all means, no, no, no. You know. So, so like I, I'm asking around the sense of, you know what is your interpretation of how society is almost mm. struggling with this uh, yeah. connection? You're, you're telling me about this, uh, this academic study as well, yeah. or, or th like uh, in terms of an ableist society and almost the, almost the difficulty then in terms of like, okay, but at what point then do the, if some, does somebody just get comfortable with the fact that a situation isn't going to change or we aren't going mm. to get to complete this typical arc that we kind of get, we're more comfortable with. Yeah. It's interesting you use the metaphor comfortable there as well, because, um, I'm comfortable in my disability, but my, com yeah. my disability give, brings me discomfort. Right. Yeah. And, there's this, this really interesting tension because there is this idea that comfortableness is always the best, you know, best thing, right? And I'm not saying, oh, no, you should valorize your pain or your discomfort. What I'm saying is turning your face away from it because that's what society wants you to do. That's yeah. the problem because, you know, for years, literally there used to be, you know, points where 
disabled people, you know, you shut them away in an institution. You know, they're out of sight, out of mind, because they query, uh, they raise the query of, <coughs> okay, all this effort you're putting in to be like X, is it actually worthwhile if people can exist as Y? Right? Yeah. And so when if we can't turn away what do we do if we can't turn away from climate change what do we do if we can't turn away from racism what do we do we want to get rid of them and that's understandable and that's good just in the same way we want to ease pain and ameliorate suffering right but disability doesn't have to be suffering right yeah um and in the same way some of these studying and sensing practices that I'm talking about, and people will develop their own, but ultimately it comes down to um, refusing to take what is taken as red, if you like. So you look at the tree and you think, oh, the tree's standing there doing nothing, right? If you, if you refuse to look at the tree as just a tree, as you know it, Let's say, actually, there's more going on here. Let's see what that is. In the same way, you're lying in the bed, seemingly do nothing, and you're actually saying, I'm not doing nothing. Something's happening here. Right? So that whole trajectory um, as regards disability and society going, oh, we don't want to be, in dis we don't want to be disabled. They're the, the bottom. They're the waste. Right? We don't want to study our waste. We want to get it get it away from us, right? We don't want to look at the things that make us feel uncomfortable, right? And one of those things is we we look at our sense of comfort and we sort of conflate it with ease, right? My life is not easy, you know? Um... The lives of disabled people are not easily, uh, e easy, sorry. But you can be comfortable in the sense that, or you can have comfort, rather. There can be comfort in your life. You can have laughter, joy, all the things that are, are regarded as a good life. They're not necessarily excluded from you, despite being from this class the system yeah. sets up and goes, no, you can't have that. And it's, you better be dead. And I was like, bullshit. Sorry. I'm not sure if I can swear, but no, no, you yeah, can't, you yeah, can't, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> bullshit away. So yeah, but like, um, <laughs> so there is this real sense for me that disability and, and sensing in this context are, inextricably linked because you know metaphorically the wound is an opening that allows us to see inside things right the discomfort says "Ooh, maybe you should pay attention to this and that's what pain is really yeah. pain is saying something is going on right you either need to get out of this situation that's causing you pain or change something right yeah and if you can't change something you need to work out what's the best way to deal with your pain or your experience.
And I think what you're saying here is all, like you're also touching on a lot of universal truths here. Yes. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not saying something is absolutely oh, yeah. one way yeah. or the other, but the the sense of, I fully agree with you, this this idea that comfort equals a good life. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just in, in, in general and whatever anyone's uh, situation is, but also this sense of like we get so uncomfortable with, pain or dis, um, in, 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 in the various contexts in which other people experience mm. pain and discomfort in their lives. Um, it, we really struggle with exploring that or looking at it. Mm -hmm. like, and there's something you said, like, which I think almost tied into what you were saying at the start, but something along the lines of like, what other ways are there to exist yeah. within this situation? Yeah. And, and I know you're talking about all, all this kind of like investigation into or observation of the pain, really, because you're not trying to label yeah, it yeah, one yeah. way or the other. Um, what other ways, like when, when did you get a like, it sounds like even a little bit more freedom in this or an expanse within um, this to even contemplate the idea of what are the other ways of existing right now? Well, I think for me, I, I am, you know, amongst other things, I'm a writer. But I also engage in very various forms of meditation and what you might even call magic or the occult or any of that stuff, which yeah. is all about um, what what some academics might call rejected forms of knowledge, right? Right. So um, there are other ways of knowing and experiencing the world, and some of those involve, you know, using various breathing techniques or so on and so forth to alter your perceptions, so on and so forth. Um, and the metaphor I always sort of use is the moment I, tr I learned to explore this sensually. So if you're like, you've got somebody who's stuck in a prison cell, right? And your first impulse for any prison cell you know, mostly is to want to get out of it. You know, you're trapped. You don't want to be trapped. So you spend all your time trying to get out of the, the prison cell. That's understandable. But how do you get out of the prison cell if you don't know what the prison cell is? Right? Right. So in that case, you might feel the wall. You might look for any weaknesses, any cracks, any, you know, um, movements uh, in, in the brickwork, uh, you know, if there are no windows, you might be looking for airflow. So you have to become adept at sensing the space that you are in. And the moment you start sensing the space that you're in, the space changes, right? Right. It's, it's not what you thought it was. There's always yeah. more to it. And when you start thinking about your experience as a very narrow, you know, thing like that, right? And the whole of the world is outside of that. And there are things which are shaping the walls of the so-called prison cell that maybe you should pay attention to 
maybe you should pay attention to uh, the the things which seemingly are outside the idea of the individual. So maybe you should start paying attention to the food that you're eating. Not in some health way, but start observing. Hey, when I eat this kind of food, my body behaves this way and this way. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's scientific, but it, it's not the kind of science, that, you know, that, that we normally invoke. It, there is this, this yeah. real, um, call and response because you're sat there, you're observing and you're witnessing, but you're also participating. You're not, you're not some abstract figure just watching and taking notes in a lab somewhere because to return to the prison cell metaphor, you're touching the wall and you're leaving your sweat. You're leaving the oil from your fingers on the wall and you're picking up the bacteria from the wall. So all the way through, there is this profusion of others, you know, influencing you. And what's, what's the, one of the key things to me is realizing that actually what we would consider an ordinary state of consciousness isn't one state of consciousness at all. You know, we're constantly moving between them. We're constantly yeah. moving between, you know, how we're reacting. You know, some spiritual traditions would say we're dreaming. You know, we, we're dreaming while awake. And yeah. if you've ever had a very vivid dream, you know that, you know, dreams can shift and change. If you start to notice that shifting quality in your everyday life, then, you know, things become less fixed, more fluid. Everything becomes flux. And in that flux, you can, uh, if you can't go in a straight line, uh, you can sail like a boat on the sea, you know, right. There are currents and flows and you can set a course, right. But you have to acknowledge the currents and flows of the ocean. You can't just forge ahead and be like, yes, I'm the human. I can force my way through. No, you have to pay attention to the weather to the currents, to the, to the movements of, of things larger and different to yourself. It seems like you've come into contact with just the vast universe that exists mm. either both internally, but then also outside yes. of you as well. Yeah. Like, and, and within this, this has been, this has been quite significant in, in your, in your curiosity, with mm. your curiosity mm. and your, 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 just your wonderment about, yeah the experience of life yeah, as well. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to know as well that I'm not sure. And I don't mean in terms of hallucinatory experiences, but I'm not sure how we define internal and external anyway. Very fair. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I'm literally not sure how, you know, okay, we will talk about the skin as, as the ultimate barrier, but your skin has pores. Like I believe it's something like one to 2% of, the respiration, a tiny amount, but respiration happens in the pores of your skin, right? It's not much compared to your lungs. 
there is a porosity, you know, to, to all of this, to, to every outline, there is a kind of porosity to everything. There is a sort of a fuzziness. And so if I'm not sure about what's internal and external, I then cannot say to myself, um, ah, yes, I am ultimately in control or I am the only one that matters. You know, I can't be the only one that matters because I'm not even one person. <laughs> I'm this whole yeah. mess of everyone I've ever known, every piece of bacteria I've ever put in my body, you know, millions of years of stuff like that. I have mitochondria, which decided to come in and eat another cell millions of years ago. We are always the others. So the question is of, of you know, how are there other ways to be is always backed by what others am I, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, that's really nicely, that's really nicely put the, the, look, one thing I, I never even, when we did talk the last time yeah. that you just mentioned at the end, um, and I mentioned to you briefly that I, I sure. love Alan Moore and you mentioned that yeah. you liked him too, uh, when you mentioned the role of magic and the occult, yeah. because this isn't something that I've I've looked in, mm. I've looked mm. at too strongly in my own, whether you want to call it spiritual path yeah. or you know consciousness or uh, just observation of life. I, I guess mm -hmm. maybe even um, could you kind of give a, a sense sure. of how that that plays a role? For sure, you? for me. Um and I'm going to use a term that I hate, but it is one that has some currency and your listeners might know. I live in an animist universe, right? right? So stuff is alive and has influence to varying degrees, right? And when I say that occult stuff is rejected forms of knowledge, what I mean is, uh, and apologies, I'm a recovering person with a recovering philosophy background here, right? <laughs> so um, there are various ways of knowing. There are what, what are called epistemologies. And various different <laughs> epistemologies exist. Uh, so the, the example that is always used is, <sighs> that I quite like is I, I can say... Um, I know maths, right? I know mathematics. But I can also say, I know Mark. I'm using the same word, no. But they have two different qualities, two different kinds of propositional knowledge, right? And what the occult, in inverted commas, um, can mean for some, is the study of the hidden experience of knowing, right? So you, you've said you've picked Alan Moore, and Alan Moore is of of the opinion um, that art is magic, that influencing people's consciousness through, you know, writing, speech, whatever, is a form of magic. Um, 
despite the beard, I'm not totally, you know, <laughs> in agreement with with uh, a, a loyal disciple. I thought you were. Yeah, be. no, I, I'm very fond, and I have friends who are friends of his. But um, yeah, I would say for me that the occult or any of this things that are associated with magic is fundamentally about existing and prospering in a living cosmos, a cosmos where there are other influences and whether one believes in gods or spirits or purely viruses that alter our entire society, um, studying those influences is what eventually became what we call science. You know, yeah. there is <laughs> the, the division between magic, occultism, science. It's a very modern one. You know, the arc of history, if you like, if it has an arc, which I'm not sure about, is people paying attention to the world and working with the world as they experience it. And in doing so, learning things about the world and experiencing so, knowledge which might be considered irrational, right? But in that irrational knowledge, being able to pass that round down to generations. And so you might have a story of, say, you know, if you need this um, situation solving, use this herb, right? Or, you know, this is how you speak to the gods by mixing these two wine, these two vines together and brewing up some ayahuasca, right? We, we would, in our modern world, we would say, oh yeah, that's, that's trial and error and, you know, scientific knowledge and repetition and eventually that's how they got it. But what if you say that those people learnt the forest and they let the vines speak to them in whatever way that is and in some fashion they learnt to fuse those two vines together to brew ayahuasca which then gives them um, their experiences which they then come back and tell their community and perhaps that moves in a feedback loop because for me um what's interesting and your listeners might be interested in some of the work by a fellow by the name of peter kingsley um one of his theses is theses is that um western philosophy um which is sort of the basis of rationality as we you know have it um, in its pre-Socratic form involved uh, in many cases going down into a dark cave uh, and performing rituals and having mystical experiences and then coming up and using those mystical experiences to explore the world and say actually we should behave this way and that way. So I'm with Alan Moore in the sense that I think magic is the basis of what becomes culture. Strange experiences you know, then get 
um, rendered less strange and become part of how a culture responds. So to me then it sounds though like that it's uh, and I don't want to make uh, something uh, mythical or magical mm. reduced to the idea of a tool but if, if yeah. you excuse the, the definition like mm. it's it almost seems like another tool for trying to see the world for how it is or using like or it's almost like for me it sounds like uh, like we need to we need to deconstruct the lenses that we're viewing the world yeah. in because this straight logic way of looking at things doesn't seem really to be fundamentally answering some of the bigger curiosities within us. And it also, some of the conclusions we've come to as a society, mm. it doesn't seem to be making people crazy happy either. Yeah. Like, or it's not like people have figured something out. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say... I, I probably need to make this clear. I'm not anti-science here from from any of this. Uh, oh, no, know. no, no, no. But it, but I but I think just in and it doesn't it doesn't sound like that mm. way. And even just yeah. uh, with your philosophy background and all that, I I know you're not. Mm. Uh, I, I know you're not like um, <laughs> like anti-education yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. or you, you know not, nothing like this. But but I do like just from someone who has personally explored with ayahuasca before or meditates or different mm. things like it's just interesting and even you know as i mentioned to you fasted last week just yeah. to experience an altered state i wanted to experience uh the world from a different perspective yeah, yeah. like from someone that needed to move slowly throughout my day yeah. Yeah. from someone that didn't have energy did you, did you get me oh like yeah no totally uh, and i think i think that that is i think we're, we're converging on a point here which is that there are multiple ways of knowing and experiencing the world and yeah. one of the things that i would that i like is and i'm trying to bring this back is we have the, uh, you know we have the archaic phrase in english uh, that is beyond our ken, or when you, when you find something, something is beyond your ken, and ken, and you know the German kennen relates to that knowing which is not the rational knowing, right? Yeah. And what I think we're both sort of seeking in altering our consciousness is is to experience the kenning as well as the the rational knowledge yeah 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 and and not in some like directly lot like sequential mm. thing of integrating them both but integrating integrating my knowledge in different fields to to something yeah. that feel that feels something more representative or aligned with the natural pulse the subtle pulsings yeah. of the world and the the things that most people aren't paying attention mm. to there's there's something there's something you said at the very start though in terms that that I wanted to go back to um and even just how that maybe is even aligned with this mm -hmm. in this curiosity but you know you mentioned at the start of almost experiencing a burnout of trying to yeah. trying to be as as normal as possible or availing of the opportunity to be uh, uh, like in such a normal yeah. s uh, situation and the inherent struggles within that. What what released you from that that 
uh, almost <laughs> pattern of mm. orientating towards that? Um, for me, it was the realization that it would kill me. Eventually, it would shorten right. my life and it would kill me. Um, and I didn't want to die. <laughs> I didn't want to die in, in like that. I didn't want to yeah. die spending the rest of my days trying to pursue a goal that I fundamentally had realized I would never, ever, ever even come close to. It's not even about, oh, you'll try, but you'll never get there. <laughs> I'm never going to be good enough to qualify. I'm never going to cross the right. line to match that. I'm always going to be this, whatever this is in a complex. So I went, okay, if that's the case, I really should study what this is. Right. And I think everybody has that choice, that moment in their life when they're like, I have all these dreams and hopes and I could either <laughs> kill myself trying to get them um, and achieve them and then be like, whoa, that's 40 years of my life gone. Right. Or I could go, maybe there's another way. <laughs> maybe I can achieve a similar sort of sensation, a similar sort of good life by studying where I am now rather than constantly looking to a future or an ideal. And I think that's one of the biggest moments is, is when you realize you're always going to be there. Even if you succeed, you're always going to be there, right? Like even if you become the million billionaire, the <laughs> VC founder, whatever, you're always going to be there. You can't escape from yourself, right? Yeah. So why not learn that self in the most rooted, most detailed, most intimate way possible? And then when you've started doing that, maybe your goals will shift. Or maybe you'll be like, yeah, actually, I don't want to be like the billionaire. What I actually want is just enough to eat and enough to go and do this. And you suddenly realize... Maybe I don't have to work out those 40-hour weeks or those, you know, 10-day things. And maybe this whole idea that I should is kind of an insulation from myself, right? And I think a lot of a lot of people, I mean, <laughs> I'll argue and sort of agree with Bio on this one, that the human is an insulation project, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I'm lucky, and I do say lucky, because my disability has meant that that insulation has never been, like, I've never been fully wrapped in the bubble wrap, right? That's a, that's a beautiful expression, this insulation from themselves. I, I, I almost think this, uh, sometimes people's achievements, they're, they're almost an edifice to the void that exists within them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I love this sense as well of, and, it, and it's happened for me in terms of my goal, the more I go inside and investigate myself, there's pretty substantial and obvious ways in which I'm showing up differently in the world mm. outside of me and, and how I'm, what I'm striving for or letting go of or not striving for. Mm. It, it's, 
there, there's something really magical to to the experience. Oh yeah, and I think once you study yourself, you begin to notice and can take stock of your resources better. Right. This is one thing that yeah. you know. You mentioned the pulses of the world um, earlier, and our bodies pulse as well. But our energy levels, they ebb and flow. They're cyclic. They're not linear, right? And for many people with disabilities, <laughs> they might be able to say, oh, I don't know whether I'm going to have the energy to do that next week or even tomorrow, right? Because your energy levels fluctuate. So you go with the, you know, you begin to study the rhythms of your own energy levels, right? And you start to go... What is the most effective thing that I can do with the minimal amount of energy? Right? Yeah. And this is, this is the big thing. When you look at activism, you look at all these big movements, they cost a lot of energy, right? And, and, and can, can accelerate exhaustion. And what I'm trying to hint at, because it's different for everyone, is there are movements, there are ways that are low energy that mean you can do more while appearing to do less. Yeah. Right? And the only way you learn that is by studying yourself. And when you get to a point of studying yourself, your own body, your own mind, you start to realize, I'm also composed of others. So it's also not just studying me, it's studying your environment. It's studying where you live. It's studying if you go on walks, which walks energize you, which walks, you know, exhaust you more, which experiences are beneficial, which experiences drain you of your vitality. And this is one of those things where my primary metaphor is vitality, right? Because vitality is not just physical strength. It is not just energy. It is about how much you embrace life, whatever the yeah. life is. And yeah, once yeah. you embrace that life, you become vital in whatever um, form your life is. So if you're in a hospital bed, and you can't move, but you've embraced life enough that you are, although you can't write hundreds of words, the tens of words that you are writing are filled with life. And over six months, you manage to get an essay out or a piece out and it affects people. Bang. You've done that. And people pick up on the vitality of it. I, I think this is a, uh... I think this is so important. I've I've actually written about this before. The the sense of aliveness which we feel in our lives. I think yeah. is we you know we've talked earlier about comfort being something that people are seeking, and and of course comfort at times is wonderful as well. You, yeah. you know. Oh yeah. yeah. People, well, I'm not dissing you know, comfort at um, all. I'm not dissing. No, no, you know, no, 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 it's good to it's good to sink into a good comfortable you know chair and I, I, absolutely. And it wasn't taken that way, but the you know the. I think this, the thing that we're sometimes missing and sometimes when we're over-indexed or over-weighted in our pursuit mm. of comfort, we're missing out on this sense of aliveness, which I think is, it's something that 
when one deeply connects with themselves and the world around them um, or even in integrates or infuses with the world around mm. them there's an aliveness that doesn't always bring a predictability but mm. you, you can feel it off people and, and, and i think it's it's such a rich quality in terms of someone experiencing their own personal good life i mm. guess and i think one of the interesting things about that is it ties in quite neatly with um again something that bio uh, often says is it's about becoming lost. Yeah. Um, it's about engaging with not knowing <laughs> what's going on yeah. and wondering about it and not holding to anything fixed. I wonder what the tree is doing. I wonder what that painting in, in you know, the back of Mark's window there is um, <laughs> doing. And it appears my cat has come to visit. So, yep, there we go. <laughs> um, there's the other. Please don't close the browser on me. That would be bad. Um, but yes, this is this is one of the others in my existence yeah. that influences my life. Um, yeah. But yes, for, for anyone listening, uh, for anyone listening at the moment, Craig's cat has just climbed up. Uh, in in between ourselves and and the camera yep. but but you know that's i i think that's that's a lovely thing though isn't it just this this life being this kind of emergent piece yes. and, and yes. things popping up and and falling into acceptance in them and and you know at the start of the conversation you were referring to you know you're wondering what people are missing in their perspective what people are missing even in their perspective of this idea of a normal life and mm. um, not wasting energy anymore in terms of you know trying to trying to fit a certain definition of something like that yeah. you know you always said later on that almost killed you like then this deeper curiosity that you're experiencing in terms of you know are there other ways of being paying attention to the subtleties like people someone lying on a bed could say and somebody could say they're doing nothing but no there's lots going on in that yeah. and just the different levels of um, energy that we can all exert and just trying to appreciate whatever your experience of life is yeah and then even you know talking about a deeper inquiry using things like meditation magic the occult um then also even just having outlets for this curiosity whether i know you're saying you're a recovering uh philosopher but but uh or philosophy study or philosophy but then also this sense of uh writing as well and the and the importance of that and mm. And when you mentioned even, you know, writing something and capturing something and the vitality that brings you as well, the sense of vitality, it's not, vitality isn't this just this label that means a set experience no, for one person. No. It's a sense of aliveness that someone feels in their own life. I think you, you've mentioned so many kind of enriching things for people to consider in terms of an appreciation and awareness of their own lives and, and trying to perhaps maybe try to get uh, for people to explore things in different ways, look at things in different ways, just in everything. I've really enjoyed everything you've shared throughout this conversation, Greg, but just to, to ask you the explicit question, I always ask people at the of end course. of the conversation, uh, what is a good life for you, Craig? Um, a good life is one that allows you to live uh, in the most maximal way possible to embrace the aliveness uh, in every single circumstance 
and to know that shifts, changes, pulses, and rhythms are more and more fundamental to us than we ever really realize. Um, and maybe, just maybe, we might want to risk de-insulating ourselves a little bit. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely beautifully put. And I love this idea of not trying to almost like contain life, but just pay attention to the shifting vibrations, pulses, seasons, movements. It all overflows and, and the cup runneth over, as they say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Craig, look, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join Pleasure us today Mark. on Pleasure. the What is a Good Life podcast. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and your company, and I, I look forward to us connecting again. All so. right. Take care.